Welcome to Cheek by Giles podcast, not true, but useful. This is episode four, Scenes and Sandcastles. Hi, I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and in this podcast, I'll be interviewing Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, the director and designer who lead Cheek by Jowl, a theatre company whose work has been performed in more than 400 cities across six continents. In these conversations, they will be sharing their creative philosophy of ideas that they find not true, but useful in making theatre. Welcome to today's episode, in which we're going to be talking about thresholds. So hello to both Declan and Nick. How are you both doing this week? Um, fine. Very well, thanks, Lucy. We're now in the seventh week of lockdown. Yeah. And I was wondering, Nick, how do you manage to keep your creative brain ticking over in this time of suspended animation? Um, well, I'm reading. I'm reading a book about quantum mechanics, much of which I simply do not understand, but it's certainly stimulating. And I'm eating, and that's feeding the brain. And I'm doing the occasional Zoom seminar with... Um, and I will be doing one with um, theatre design students in Cardiff. And what about you, Declan? What's keeping your creative juices flowing? I'm um, looking at him reading his book on quantum, and I'm um, getting him to read out, to read out the racier bits of it. But um, I've, I've read a bit of it myself. It's very, I find it very difficult to settle during this strange time um, and, and, and read anything properly. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing a word which comes up a lot when you talk about the way that you make theatre, and that word is threshold. And we touched on this word a bit in episode two, space and Shakespeare. And today we're going to dig a bit deeper into it. So for a quick recap for our listeners, in episode two, we talked about how Declan and Nick use space to think about plays. And an important ingredient in the space for them is thresholds or crossing places. Now, Declan, you sometimes share images which you describe as haunting, images which resonate with you as ways of explaining your ideas. And when you talk about thresholds, the haunting image of sandcastles often crops up. Could you tell us more about sandcastles? I love sandcastles. I used to love sandcastles. I'm far too old and self-conscious now to sit down on my arse on a beach and make them. But, you know, I I was remember being fascinated by them as a child. Um, You know, I used to go on holiday as a child to Margate. And when you walk down a tidal beach, you see the ruins of of yesterday's uh, sandcastles. And they're a kind of wonderful thing. I don't really find them mournful. I think they're incredible monuments to... The human spirit. But what is interesting about the sandcastle is it's not about the sandcastle at all. What the sandcastle actually is, is the moats. It's the system of walls, defences. It's as if the child chooses that space um, to build the sandcastle, because what's fascinating isn't the castle, it's the control of this mighty oceanic force that the child in some small way is going to attempt to control. This gesture of control is completely futile because the sandcastle will be engulfed. But that doesn't matter at all. And what's so beautiful about the child is saying to the parent silently, you can build for posterity. I'm going to build for life. The real interest in the sandcastle building is in the space where there is this almighty encounter between the land and the ocean. And I think that the child gets attracted to that liminal space because it's temporary and because there's a playing with dread in it, that the ocean is sort of dreadful and enormous. And the child plays with the fantasy of having some kind of temporary power over that. But we can already see many, many shapes in the sandcastle 
that will help us when we make art, when we make theatre, when we direct, when we act. One is that it takes place in what people call the liminal space. I, I sort of hate the word liminal because it's a bit frightening. I, I never knew what it meant for years. Um, and it, it basically means referring to the threshold. So it basically takes place in the threshold space, which is ocean and sand in an almighty encounter with each other. It would be a danger to look at the sandcastle and think, oh, it's such a beautiful sandcastle. Isn't it a pity that the danger of the ocean is going to destroy it? But actually... I suggest that it's actually the presence of the danger. It is the menace, it is the threat, it is the danger that invites the child to play with it, to see if this can be in some way uh, mitigated by the collection of moats and runnels around which the water's going to be temporarily tamed. Like all things, the story's there. If it's any use, it's going to haunt us. If we understand the story, if we struggle to understand the story, we can probably succeed in killing it for us, you know. We, always, we often struggle to make the myth safe by explaining it. If I get anywhere in my understanding, I will almost certainly find a mystery much bigger than the one that I went in with. And that's what happens to physicists, great physicists, and they're kind of exemplary about this, of understanding that they're not going to understand, understanding there may be some things that we will never understand. Or put it practically, if, if any directors are listening to this, I always think my job is to make everything as clear as I can, understanding that the, if the play is any good, it will have a central mystery. And that central mystery will be inexplicable, but it will be important. So why are thresholds and sandcastles useful for actors to think about? The last thing I want to do is create another set of rules that people can use, adhere to. All I can say is that the thought shape of threshold I have seen to be quite useful. I, I may, in, in this episode, bang on about the word threshold, but really it's a more helpful word than other words. That's all I can say. If you feel very stuck, a good rule of life when you're on stage is I'm in a space, I have an impulse to cross a threshold, to go into another space, and what I find in that other space is different from what I had expected. The last one is really crucial because we cannot see what we expected to see. I think the most important aspect of the threshold is it's something that gets the actor outside the actor's self. So that a threshold is clearly something which presents you with an obstacle that which you have to get over. So I open a door and I've got to pass through the passage of the door into the next room. Um, and that can be, there are many doors and there are endless doors in conversations. We're very aware of that in real life of when somebody, the expression we use is, crosses a line. Uh, I think if we get a microscope of the conversation, we'll see that we're always crossing a line. Um, you might think there's no use in getting a microscope out, but well, I think sometimes there is, particularly if you feel blocked or paralyzed or if you start to indicate feeling. Uh, if you feel lost, you know, why not give it a try? That actually, rather than thinking I'm thinking a new thought, is that I go through a threshold into a new thought. And the new thought I'm going to have isn't quite the thought I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so we're always, we're always surprised by what we find on the other side of the threshold. But I love the idea of the threshold because it gives you a sense of motion and above all else, that you have no choice but to move, really. The more you look at a space, the more you'll see it's actually not, in fact, a space. It's not as stable as we would like. It's, in fact, a moving threshold. It's certainly a place of change and danger. So is that what is so important about thresholds in scenes, that they're places of change and danger? Well, I think maybe let's go back to the first threshold, or one of the first thresholds, which is when the baby emerges into the world through, indeed, the mother of all thresholds and goes from sort of a very dark, tight place into a place full of mysterious substance it will later identify as light and sound. And 
Um, you know, I've seen lots of videos. I've actually never, sadly, witnessed a birth. I've never been invited, probably for very good reasons. But on the whole, the babies look pretty troubled when they come out. We don't know what a baby's feeling. Nobody actually knows. But, you know, you can't really tell really what the facial expressions mean because they haven't had any mirroring. But by and large, they're either angry or frightened or sceptical. Uh, some parents swear that their children come out beatifically peaceful, and maybe that's true. I don't know. I think on the whole, my, my feeling is that that's probably not true, that the baby comes into a world um, needing to be reassured. The big thing that the mother needs to do with her um, cuddling and holding the baby is to make the baby feel safe. The, the mother's way saying, you know, you're absolutely safe, you're totally safe. This, of course, isn't true because an asteroid could land on them. Um, so, but nobody would thank their mothers who said, you know, I'm holding you now, but we're not really safe because who knows what will happen. You know, the asteroid can't go. You know, the, the, it is the, a beautiful lie with which we need to begin our lives. And then bit by bit, we have to unpiece the fact that that wasn't strictly speaking true, that we're not actually completely safe, that the universe, as we had first suspected, is <laughs> actually a pretty tricky place. And so we start to sort of go through the, the phases to, to help us grow up. But the threshold is, um, uh, um, I think the word threshold can give comfort to some actors because you just think that the space is a series of thresholds and the threshold itself is connected somehow to this more frightening word, which is predicament, the fact that there's... Uh, it's not going to end well. So in other words, thresholds are a way of structuring a character's journey through a scene, constantly providing places of dangerous change, on the other side of which they find themselves like that baby, taken aback and profoundly out of control of the situation. Well, yes, we are. But we are. I mean, there's, there's, it's not a matter of opinion. We just are out of control. And we do appalling things to ourselves and to other people and to the country, all sorts of things, to convince ourselves that we are in control. But we are continually keeping up with um, a changing world. And, we're, and, and we're, we're also changing. So these things, I mean, you just want to say, sometimes stop, stop, stop. I just want, I just want to be in a safe, unchanging space. But that's simply not going to happen. And we, we, we make comfortable homes. We do all sorts of things to make us feel a bit safe. And that's, you know, I mean, I do that. We all do that. It's absolutely inevitable. If you have a child, you absolutely must do that. At the beginning of a rehearsal period, you have to do that. We have to reassure each other and we have to feel safe. And then we're going to build something together. But that that um, feeling of safety is absolutely crucial. So it sounds like thresholds aren't just literal entrance and exit places or doorways, but you use the idea of thresholds all the way through scenes. Yes. I mean, I mean it's not a funny thing, um, but a threshold sort isn't an idea. It actually is basically all that we know, this, tarot, this thing of this place in continual change. Yes, I mean, that's that's how it is. When we're having a conversation... When you're, when you're with somebody, at any moment, at any given moment, you're continually crossing through thresholds. I don't think we should be deluded into thinking that thresholds are something that happen occasionally, that there is nothing other than that the threshold keeps changing. First of all, you need to stabilise yourself and think that we live in the space, and that's good. But then you need to look a little bit deeper and realise that space is a, is a relentlessly changing threshold that you're trying to keep up with. So it's very useful for the actor to think uh, that they meet a threshold and what they get on the other side is 
very surprising to them and puts them out of control of the situation. So they may try and make another change. They meet another threshold. In a way, yes. But they need also to admit that they had an expectation before they crossed. Mm. That's the the thing that we sometimes miss out. That we actually, because we like to control, we have expectations of what's going to be on the other side of the door. That's how horror films work. You know, you have an expectation that there's going to be a monster or not. There is an expectation that's denied. So it's um, that's that's just worth remembering. It happens naturally in real life. And so the useful way of thinking about thresholds is it puts the character constantly in flux, right? They're constantly out of control, constantly having to uh, address the fact that they're not getting what they thought they were going to get. Yes, I think just just to clear up a point, though, I think it's not useful. Certainly, it's not, I don't think it's at all useful for the actor to think I'm changing although that's true. It's true, but not useful. Um, What's useful is for the character um, to probably think I'm the same. It's just, why does the world keep changing? And and, and that the space outside in a continual state of surprising change, and that everything you expect is different from what you had thought it was. And I've heard you uh, say to an actor that an actor in good creative health is one who is seeking thresholds mm. and not backing off from them in a scene. Did I say that? Yes, you did. <laughs> I think if, if you're quite healthy, an actor kind of seeks an opportunity to move and seeks a change. It's quite good to accept an opportunity to move, and it's quite good to accept a change, because there are no there are no plateaus. See, we'd love to have plateaus in our lives, you know, and we look back and fantasise about our childhoods, and we think of a sort of plateau period when things were safer and better or whatever, but they weren't plateaus. They were um, really bumpy times of enormous agony. And I think, one of, I think people are very unfair to young people, and one of the reasons is old people are, are very young people is they forget how frightening it is to be young. They forget how bumpy um, the world is and how surprising it is and how difficult it is to deal with this endlessly changing universe. And I think it's a dangerous fantasy that we can have in rehearsals because we have to create a show that is roughly replicable every night and that people end up in the same spots on the stage for the lights, etc. that we're trying to control exactly where everybody's going in the space. But actually, this fantasy of trying to put the character in control of the space is actually pretty deadening to the scene. The character cannot be the character can't be in control of the space. And one of the things that the character can't control is the feelings that the character is having, because those start to come from the space as well. My fear, my my desire, my, all of those things. They're like those wonderful aeroplanes that strafe Fay Ray at the top of the um, Empire State uh, at the end of King Kong. So it's obscure image but one that is important to me um it's like we're being strafed by little um aircraft shooting bullets at us that's how our feelings strike us as orsino says and my desires like fell and cruel hounds their sins pursue me that they come from the outside and it's just really difficult to keep up with these things so yes i don't think the actual thing that the character's changing it's just from the i mean that may be true but after the mask is spun the character sees through the eyes a world that's continually changing and, and is going far faster than the uh, character wants to do and, it, and just trying to keep up with it. What you're saying reminds me of the image of a duck gliding along on the surface with their legs paddling frantically underneath. Encountering thresholds means that the character has to make an effort to avoid the panic of being out of control and that seems to electrify a scene sometimes. Well, that can be, yes. I think it's a pretty fair rule of thumb. I mean, I wouldn't like to argue the point with anybody, but I think... On the whole, humans are rather nearer to um, terror and panic than they, we, we like to admit. That actually it doesn't take many <laughs> taps on the computer of our mind to deliver us into a place that's really quite, 
quite frightened. And what seems interesting about this is that that naturally generates an emotional life, as you said in our, in our last episode, that uh, we shouldn't be trying to generate fear, panic, sadness, joy, tears, that if you cross the threshold and deal with the scene, then there, your internal life will take care of itself. We can generate nothing, and it's really sad when we delude ourselves that we can. I mean, there's, there's not much that we can generate. We live in a world and we have to deal with that. We can steer some of the things that are given to us, but not many of the things and the huge things like dying and so on. It's, it's very, very difficult to steer. And that myth is somehow being enacted by the, the child with the sandcastle. That there's an enormous thing and we're going to make a, an attempt to somehow control the waters. And the fact that ultimately this is futile really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It's just what I do as a human being. And this idea about thresholds also seems a really practical way to circumnavigate the danger of always talking about motivation, which, as we talked about in in recent episodes, can sometimes be really treacherous. Again, we can practically talk about thresholds. We can say this is a crossing place of danger and change and that you need to deal with that. The character needs to deal with that. And what do they want to avoid and what do they expect and how is that? denied to them or how is it different from what they expect and that that generates a whole electric shock of life that talking about motivation doesn't often do and so thresholds are one way of helping us get to that place of total breathtaking adrenaline fueled dealing with the present moment yes i think in beckett's terror you know very often talks about our our complete terror with the living moment and actually in rehearsal you're trying to get in a way everybody in every play ever is um the problem of dealing with the present moment and that's what you're that's what you're trying to do very often in the present moment we don't really think in terms of motives We, we 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 have other ways of thinking motives i'm afraid are a way of explaining why we do things in a way makes us feel quite comfortable. So Nick, in your work as a designer, how do you go about helping actors to populate their space with thresholds? Well, I think any space that I might create needs to allow space for them to imagine different spaces. So in a sense, if there's nothing, maybe we need, I don't know, something evocative object or other, which will help help them spark a sense of that space. But on the whole, I think we've found in our experience in, in making particularly Shakespeare plays, that an empty space is what they, they need. And, and anything large or substantial tends to, to block the imagination because ultimately the space is an imaginative thing. It's entirely personal to each character. And within that imagined space is the task in rehearsals to explore thresholds which make sure the character is always surprised? The threshold, yes. I mean, the threshold is the way that we experience things. We're in one space, I mean, leave it and go into another, which is surprising. We leave. So thought is a series of thresholds. That's what I like to think, that you're not in a sort of still space when you think. Thinking itself is a series of spaces. Humans live in spaces all the time. They're either in the concrete present, which is, of course, their own imagined space, or they're somewhere else. They think in terms of space. Um, they memor- Their memories in- are always in terms of space. That is how human beings function. There's no getting away from space. And having, having established that, then all spaces have thresholds. I mean, that, that must be a fact too. So thresholds, space are kind of unavoidable 
in terms of how human beings live. They are the operating system by which we access not only the universe, but also ourselves, but also each other. In this part of the podcast, we always take a play or a scene as a test case for explaining today's topic. So today we're going to look at Macbeth, Act 2, Scene 2, and why thresholds are important in this scene. And you can, as always, find the text of this scene in the podcast notes. As a quick recap for anyone who hasn't seen or read Macbeth lately, at the top of this scene we see Lady Macbeth in the middle of the night, waiting in terror outside the king's bedroom door whilst Macbeth murders him inside. And then Macbeth enters, he's carrying two bloody daggers and he's tormented by what he's done and he's hearing voices coming out of the walls condemning him for this murder. And Lady Macbeth has to deal quickly with her unravelling husband before he gets them caught. He has to get the daggers off him, take them back inside to plant on the king's guard and then whisk him off stage to get cleaned up before anyone finds them covered in blood. So, what are some important thresholds in this scene? <laughs> we explained it incredibly well, Lucy. Um, well, it's one long bloody threshold. I mean, it's like it's like a continual series of surprises that he starts to unravel. He, is he the mad? Is he that mad? Is he that irresponsible? Oh my God, he is. Is he? So, and it's like it's very, very difficult for her to keep up with the unraveling predicament of her husband, who's just gone completely to pieces, and and, and all sorts of other things. So the whole space is changing for her all the time. I think we've, Nick and I once counted thirteen different spaces. How many was it we counted? I can't remember. And you count them differently every time. But there's the owl, you know, the fatal bellman, knocking at the south entry, the second chamber, Donald Bain, um, where the noise comes from, um, the, the bedroom chamber itself, um, the mysterious place from which the, the, the sounds come. But this idea of upstairs and downstairs is very, very important. So there's, the whole thing is spatially. That's one of the incredibly, incredibly genius things in Shakespeare is he is obsessed with space and he's continually giving you clues that the whole thing is located so it's it's deeply located in in space and it seems to me that that Macbeth's entrance is a pretty good example of crossing a threshold and not seeing what you expect to see because he comes out expecting to find where the voice is coming from right that he's chasing this weird sound that's coming out the walls and he enters into the space and he doesn't find it my feeling is I mean I suppose what I feel as a person, not so much as a director, is that he was expecting this was the great moment of, this was the ultimate connection between him and his wife. It was like the, the ultimate coitus between them, and that it's the moment of total fulfilment of everything between the two of them. And he comes in, and it's not like that. And so he's surprised. However, <laughs> way down the performances, um, you know, after that, everyone's sort of feeling safe in what they're doing. I think it's important to remember that he's surprised by what he always knew. Um, and that's the real sadness in all of the tragedies. The people are these huge surprises by what somehow they always knew. And I think once one keys into that, then the plays become incredibly sad that, that he sort of knew it wasn't going to deliver what he hoped it would. And the two of them are sort of, they don't know how to play the scene. One of the things about, so apart from that, they're completely terrified. There's a tiny little thing that I, I'd like to mention in the scene. It's a stupid word, but it's I find it quite useful. Is They're embarrassed. They don't know how to play the scene with each other. It's just embarrassing because they're suddenly, they don't know how to be with each other anymore. They don't know how to touch each other, how to look at each other. Everything's utterly different. 
for them from now on and can never be the same. So there's a literal threshold in this scene which you could point at on the stage, which is that doorway, yes. which causes massive change every time they go in and out of it, every time they go in and out of the scene of this murder. But then there's all kinds of other thresholds in this scene. For example, Lady Macbeth suddenly realising that they can't take the daggers away with them, crossing a threshold to, and now how do we deal with the daggers? So there's thresholds you can point at that are an actual doorway and thresholds that are happening in the space as well. Thresholds are just a way of helping us structure our thinking. It's a temporary scaffolding for rehearsals and it must be got rid of in time. It's like, for example, the structure around a rocket um, before it takes off. There's a kind of scaffolding structure that gets burnt up actually, in the ascent of the rocket. However, it has to be said, of course, that, you know, in later in Iran, if um, things start to go dead, there are various things that one might use to see if you can help life flow again through the scene. And occasionally, at the end of Iran, you might well start to think in terms of structures like, um, like thresholds. I mean, I think this scene that we're talking about is more useful in terms of actual space because the space is so complicated. And I think if the actor's simply work out what the space is it makes the playing the scene infinitely easier and the the thresholds are of course there all the time but really if they can just commit to the space like just the owl that shrieks you know we don't want to see lady Macbeth's feelings when she hears the owl we just want to see lady Macbeth hear the owl and from where the owl is coming from we want to get a sense of where it is outside and Each line is precise about the space. It's only, they only speak about the space. Macbeth only talks about the room, the horrible room that he's left covered in blood. That's all he talks about. And I think he never leaves that room psychologically. From then on, actually, there's no connection between them. So he's in another space. He's in the wrong space. So Macbeth and Lady Macbeth have an enormous problem um, that is the, the the murder room, the room where um, Macbeth has murdered Duncan. They will actually never leave there. Um, there's no amount of therapy. There's nothing they can do. They're going to be stuck in that room for the rest of their lives, and they're going to have to deal with that. And that's very important to um, to take on board. The, the, the guilt is not some sort of intellectual um, kind of diagnosis of a state of mind it's always experienced spatially and um that's what happens with the macbeths they'll never get out of that room because they've done a terrible thing and the worst do you know one of the worst things about it is they never wanted to do it in the first place and that'll be the thing that they that'll be an aspect of it they will never forgive themselves about I've also heard you talk about the end of every line being another threshold, because as every thought's a threshold, every line that you say never quite works. So you have to say the next line. That's sort of true. Um, it's sort of useful. Um, but I, I, I really wouldn't want the actors to run around with a pencil trying to find the thresholds, because the whole thing is a threshold. It's just a continually changing threshold. So sometimes there might be a great big threshold that you walk through. When Lady Macbeth says, I have given suck, you feel that she's crossing a huge threshold. And because it comes from nowhere, I feel that she's breaking a taboo, like we do not mention the dead baby. And the way that she says it means that she's going to really... 
um, up the stakes. You know, I'll raise you 500. You know, she really puts the stakes. The stakes, for me, when I'm watching the scene, always seem to soar at that point, and the scene turns. And yes, I would say that is a threshold. It's a big threshold in the scene that she dare, she crosses a line when she says that. Crossing a line is a threshold. Everything that you say is, is you can't say the same line twice because you're continually crossing into a new space. A new thought is a new space. What I find so useful about the way that you talk about thresholds is that, as you say, it's not for the actors to diligently mark into their scripts with a pencil, but kind of like crocodile clips that you can use to jumpstart the engine when you need it. Yes, there's, there's, there's no dogma that I have. There's no kind of, there's no teaching. All I'm saying is that certain words have proved in rehearsal to me to be more useful than other words. Certain words tend to make the actor feel more trapped, tend to make me feel more trapped, and certain other words tend to open the space for me. In this part of the podcast, we answer questions that listeners have put to Declan and Nick. And this week's question is... What are your criteria when you're choosing your next production? That's a hard one. I don't think we have any criteria, at least not conscious. I mean, and in terms of lists of plays, you always have a list in your back pocket of the plays you think you'll do, and you always end up with doing something which is not on the list. And so in terms of criteria, I mean, we've worked with these old plays a lot because they've stood the test of time and they're about human beings in a profound way. And that's a very rich, you know, thing to be able to work on. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it is without question the most agonising decision that we make, which is what is the title of the play? And we never, we have no technique for that. We don't know how we do it. Every time we think we're never going to find another play. Um, so the great thing is to actors that you love, like I love Anya Khalilulina and I love Sasha Fekhlistov and Andrei Kuzichev in Russia. And always, we're always thinking of plays for them, thinking, oh, that should be good, that he'd be good, oh, that'd be great, we must do that with them. And that gives us a kind of reason to get into the play. So that's, I suppose that's our happiest way of doing it. But to say, you know, what play do you want to do now because what it's about? I mean, on the whole, we choose great plays and great plays on the whole are about what's happening now, whether you like it or not. Actually, it is quite remarkable that you choose the play and suddenly the politics tends to, um, to see, it seems to gear around to fit it. Of course, that's not true. It's your own imagination that's, that's changing. But we've had that strange experience over and over again, haven't we? Well, with Measure, measure for Measure, when we first did it, um, almost instantly the morality of politicians came into, into focus. We didn't know it would have that those political relevances when we did it. What happens is we discover the political relevances while we're doing it. Even if we find a play and we think it's it's sort of, it's very connected to now. Any idea Nick and I have ever had before we go in is nearly always jettisoned once we get into the room and it becomes about something else, something much better, something much more disturbing, something much more profound and something outside our control. So it's about, you know, the meaning we can't control the meaning. What happens is it, it controls us. Thank you so much, Declan and Nick. And that's where we're signing off for today. Thank you for listening to Cheek by Gels podcast. Not true, but useful. If you have any questions for Declan and Nick, get in touch with us on Cheek by Gels social media and we will answer as many as we can in the next episode. In the meantime, if you go to the podcast notes, you can find the text of the scene we discussed today and images from Cheek by Gel's archive. 
I've been your host, Lucy Dawkins, and the music you're hearing was composed by Pavel Kimkin for Cheek by Jail's Russian language production of Measure for Measure, which is available for free on their YouTube channel until the 25th of May. Until next week. <laughs>